Acts chapter 14 has had an impact on my life in all kinds of ways, and there are so many things that I'd want to share, and we'll try to limit it to what uh, is most relevant for the morning. But Acts 14 recounts Paul's ministry in an area of Turkey called Galatia. The letter to the Galatians will be written to the people we read about here and who we read about last week in Pisidia, Antioch. That letter is addressed to the churches in Galatia, a letter that was circulated to the multiple churches that are planted in these communities during Paul's first missionary journey. The letter to the Galatians is filled with Paul's pastoral concern and addresses some of the issues that the churches face following Paul's time ministering the gospel there. Perhaps the biggest issue was the insistence by some that Gentiles must obey Jewish ceremonial practices like circumcision. Paul gives an eloquent and vigorous defense of the essential gospel truth that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ and not by obedience to any laws. To our ears, the debate seems ridiculous, but I suppose we could consider some of the things that are debated among churches today and the insistence on certain cultural and generational norms. We are all legalistic about something. That's all I'm going to say about that because this is not a topical talk about modern day religious debates. It is a sermon on Acts 14 verses 1 through 20. But you may find it edifying this week to read Paul's letter to the Galatians. Reading Paul's letter to the Galatians anytime is edifying, but particularly in light of the people and events that we see in Acts 13 and 14. Before we get to the word this morning, let's go before the author in prayer. Our Lord, you are indeed the God of providence that knits all things together perfectly. Uh, There are uh, moments of frowning providence in the trials that we face. There is the smiling providence and the great rejoicing and successes and celebrations. But you never stop being God in the midst of all of that. And so we see that even in the times of trials and the times of threat, of oppression and persecution, even then you are God and accomplishing all that you purpose. We are glad for the revelation of that and the way that you have revealed that here in your word, not only from the book of Acts, but then also Paul's letters and the illumination that we understand of you and of our place in this world by your appointment. And so we would pray for you to come now and do what only you can do, that your spirit would bear witness to the reading and the preaching of your word, that we would be edified and that you would be glorified. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. At the end of chapter 13, we read that Paul and Barnabas' ministry in Pisidian Antioch had been successful, and yet a group of Jewish leaders had incited the women of high standing and the leader men of the city to oppose Paul. So they shook the dust from their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium, which is about 85 miles away. Listen to the account beginning there at Acts 14. 
At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes, rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Our passage begins, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue, and what they preached there would have been similar to what we saw last week from Acts 13 in Antioch. He would have presented the Old Testament kerygma, just the facts, and then the New Testament summary of the facts about Jesus, and then would have brought in uh, biblical support examples that connect the Old Testament to this new revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, and then presents the gospel with a call for the response. The pattern of ministry doesn't end there. What we see here, as we always see, is that with the preaching of the word comes two different responses. Some believe and some oppose. There really isn't a neutral response to the word of God if it has truly been proclaimed. We are told in verse 1 that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. And then verse 2 tells us, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so there were many who did believe, 
and there were many who opposed. No one was neutral. The myth of neutrality is still a myth in our society today. People will say that everyone should be allowed to believe whatever they want. But of course, they insist that you must agree with that and oppose you if you don't. The most intolerant people are those who insist on tolerance. So here's the thing. Christians don't have to be jerks about this. We don't have to make the gospel offensive. The gospel is offensive all by itself. 1 Corinthians is where we read about Paul writing to the church. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The message of the cross is offensive. The messengers don't need to be. Let me say that again. The message of the cross is offensive. The messengers don't need to be. We speak the truth, and we speak the truth in love. Some, by God's divine appointment, will believe, and others will oppose. Two people could be in the same room and hear the same message from the same person. They might even have the same background. Some will receive and some will oppose. It really isn't about us, so we don't need to make it about us. When light comes into a dark place, some embrace the light for its warmth and illumination, but some scatter when light comes into the darkness. Jesus talked about this in John 3. He said, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The light really is a good thing. And so we can present the light as a good thing. And some will respond and realize its goodness because it is good. I've told the story before, but it is so good it's worth repeating. It's from uh, Ted Tripp, who is the author of Shepherding a Child's Heart, and it's a story that happened, a true story that happened to him while he was pastoring a church. He says, recently after a, a worship service, a man approached me in a state of great agitation. He had observed a young boy stealing some money from the offering plate after the church service. He felt genuine concern for the boy. And I suggested he tell the boy's father so that the child could benefit from his father's correction and intervention. Well, a few minutes later, the boy and his father asked to see me in my study. The child produced $2 and said he had taken it from the offering plate. He was in tears, professing his sorrow and asking for forgiveness. I began to speak to him. Charlie, I am so glad that someone saw what you did. What a wonderful mercy of God that you did not get away with this. God has spared you the hardness of heart that comes when we sin and get away with it. Don't you see how gracious he has been to you? And Charlie looked at me and nodded a little bit. You know, Charlie, I continued, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came because people like you and your father and me have hearts that want to steal. You see, we're so bold and brazen that we would even steal from offerings that people have given to God. But God has such love for the wicked boys and men that he has sent his son to change them from the inside out and make them people who are givers and not takers. And at this point, Charlie broke down in sobs 
and pulled another $20 from his pocket. <laughs> That's grace. And it's grace applied. Someone once said, the difference between Christians and pagans is that we know the rules so we can fake it better. Isn't that so true? We don't need to fake it. God has already determined to love us. And we rejoice in this gospel and know that others oppose it. And so, verse 3 tells us, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. They spent considerable time there, more than just the two Sabbaths, as it was in Antioch before being run out of town. And they spoke boldly, not rudely, but boldly. There's a difference. And the Lord confirmed the message with miraculous signs because that's the purpose of miraculous signs, to confirm the message of the gospel in that apostolic age. In fact, Paul notes in his second letter to the Corinthian church that one of the marks of an apostle included signs, wonders, and miracles. So that Paul was authorized uh, and enabled to do miraculous signs demonstrated that he was an apostle and had apostolic authority. Now in this present age, there are no new apostles, there are no new revelations, and so there are no new miraculous signs. The message is confirmed substantially by the testimony of changed lives and the changes of the ages. Both historically and culturally, there is abundant testimony of the transforming work of Jesus Christ as the gospel is applied to every aspect of life and existence. And yet even with the changed lives, even with the miraculous signs, there are people in the city who are still not believing. The city is still divided. Some side with the Jews, some side with the apostles. And as tensions mount, verse 5 says, there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews. The NIV makes it sound like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. The game is afoot, Watson. Other translations have it probably a bit more accurate and straightforward that it was an assault or an attempt to stone them that was being made. It's not just an underground plotting. There was an actual mob that was on their way to execute Paul and Barnabas without trial. And so they flee the city and head to Lystra, which is about 30 miles away. And we read about the ministry in Lystra beginning at verse 8. And we read about a man who has crippled his whole life who is then healed. And it might seem in reading quickly that this miraculous healing takes place first before Paul and Barnabas did any teaching, but that's not the case. Again, remember verse 1 sets the pattern that they went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. That was the first thing they did. And verse 6 and 7 give the summary statement that they had gone to Lystra and Derby and continued to preach the good news. And so most likely they had already preached at the synagogue. It's even more likely that this event happened while Paul was preaching at the synagogue or certainly speaking to a group of people. Because verse 9 says that he, the crippled man, listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. And verse 11 tells us that it was a crowd that saw this. So again, the miraculous sign is confirming the authority of the message of the gospel. 
And once again, there will be division between those who get it and those who don't. So don't misunderstand. The Apostle Paul is not a faith healer. Paul is not Benny Hinn. He's not Billy Burke. He's not trying to manipulate people and prey upon people in order to get their money. Paul is a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ who also recognizes that people must understand the message and the messenger. There will be some who don't understand what he says and some who don't understand who he is. In fact, in this case, the crowd completely misunderstands and thinks that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes in human form. And that might seem like a stretch, but there's a reason that they think it's Zeus and Hermes. In school, many of us read about the Greek gods, perhaps from the Iliad and the Odyssey, and some had to read from Ovid, the poetic writings of Ovid and his work Metamorphoses. Well, according to Ovid's story, Zeus and Hermes once visited the valley near Lystra. And as the Greek myth goes, Zeus and Hermes had gone door to door in the village and nobody would take them in. And finally, an elderly uh, poor couple named Philemon and Bacchus receive them, and they stay for the night. In the morning, the gods take this couple out onto the mountain, and they look back, and they see the valley is flooded. But the gods have transformed their poor little house into a great temple with a glittering gold roof. Moral of the story, if you're in Lystra, make sure to treat the gods well. So when they see the miracle, they instantly thought that Zeus and Hermes had returned to give them another chance. Now what happened next would take a month of Sundays to flesh out entirely, but we'll try and hit the highlights. First, when Paul and Barnabas realize what is going on, they immediately try to stop it. Rushing into the middle of the crowd, they shout, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. Now, earlier in the service, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 8, in which the people of Israel reject the Lord as king, demanding that they have a human king like all other nations. It is the inclination of man to be ruled by men, that we pursue humans that we think to an extent that we can even control or can have them do what we want them to do. In our world today, we are prone to deify certain people and things. We treat celebrities, including sports figures, as gods and kings. And we try to figure out how to appease them so that we can get what we want. We even fantasize about what we would do if we could just meet a certain celebrity in order to gain their favor. It's a rejection of the Lord as king. We cannot win his favor. But the good news of the gospel is that his favor has been won for us by Jesus Christ. The second, Paul uses the misunderstanding in order to point away from himself back to the one and only true God of the universe. If you had a whole city that wanted to love you and worship you like a God, would you be able to turn everyone away from you to the one true God? And Paul's preaching here is remarkably different than it is to the Jewish synagogues because the audience is different. He doesn't preach an Old Testament kerygma because this is the people that don't know the Old Testament scriptures. And so what he talks about is what they know about, creation and the creator. Paul begins to talk about the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. 
And then he goes on to share what today we call common grace, that the sun shines and the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls and the righteous and the unrighteous. And in verse 17, God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And as was sung earlier, all good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. Then thank the Lord for all his love. And so we are to worship the Lord only as the preparation for worship. The affirmation of faith reminded us. We are all worshipers. The question is what or who will we worship? Will we worship celebrities? Will we worship creation instead of the creator? Will we worship at the feet of the opinions of others? And then third, notice that after all this, the crowd still wants to worship them. Verse 18, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them, which makes what happens next so incredibly amazing and I suppose unsurprising as we think about it. A mob mentality can shift so quickly. One moment they want to worship you, the next moment they want to kill you. (laughs) Sounds like pop culture today, doesn't it? Verse 19 tells us, Then some Jews came from Antioch, which is 115 miles away, and Iconium, 30 miles away, and won the crowd over. By the way, if you've ever watched the Russell Crowe movie Gladiator, then lines from that movie can come back to mind. The mob is fickle, brother. Rome is the mob. Win the crowd and you will win your freedom. That is the humanistic way of winning. Win the crowd. We recall the account of Jesus in his last week in Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, he came in to the city and the crowds were shouting out, Hosanna, praise to the king. And on Good Friday, the crowds were shouting, crucify him. The mob is fickle, brother. Be careful about how much you want to win the crowd. Churches often are wanting to win the crowd, to be the church of what's happening now and have everyone come to our worship and our programs. But the crowd is fickle, brother, and will turn on us in an instant. So the Apostle Paul was not trying to win the crowd. He was trying to present the gospel of Jesus Christ and watch God win the world. Consider what happens in the end of this passage. People from over 100 miles away win over the crowd and instead of worshiping Paul, begin to stone him and drag him outside of the city and leave him for dead. And then this blows me away, verse 20. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Paul, after surviving a public mob execution, goes back into the city. Wow. It's incredible that Paul would go back into the city after a public stoning, the crowd throwing stones at a person as a means of killing them. This primitive form of execution was such that no one person among the group can be identified as the one who kills the subject. Today, it is considered a form of execution by torture. It's notable in all this, though, that Paul goes back to the city here, but in the past two cities, he left when there was a threatening situation. At the end of chapter 13, he shook the dust from his feet and left Antioch. 
In Iconium, he heard about the mob coming, planning to stone him, and he left the city. But in this instance, he goes back into the city. Why? When are we to flee, and when are we to fight? Well, wisdom dictates the difference. And there's an important distinction that is revealed here. At the end of chapter 13, Paul doesn't shake the dust from his feet at everyone, but at the women of high standing and the leading men of the city, who were the ones that incited, uh, incited by the Jewish religious leaders that opposed the gospel. And he shook the dust from their feet in protest against them, not against the whole city, but against them. And in Iconium, it is a group of leaders who attempt to lead a crowd against Paul, and he flees from them. Paul does not leave the believers. He leaves the leaders who oppose the gospel. Paul continues to support those who have responded to the gospel. He's going to write a letter to them. He's going to come back and visit them again. Paul always supports those who responded to the gospel, but the crowd Manipulated by oppressive leaders, he leaves. And it is yet another reminder that our ministry is not just to leaders in the community, but to the whole community. If we are honest, there are some that we hope more than others would respond favorably to the gospel. We hope that those who have influence and resources will respond to the gospel, because that will make it easier to win over the community. But our goal is not to win the city because of the influence of leading men and women, but to minister the gospel to all and watch God win the world. The mob mentality means trying to win over the crowd in a humanistic way, rather than looking for genuine conversion to Christ. And so we pursue the latter. We serve Jesus, who himself was crucified at the influence of the leading men and women of that city who had convinced the crowd. Tim Keller recently said, Jesus wasn't a nice guy who did good in the world. You don't crucify good guys. You crucify threats. Jesus was a threat. The apostle Paul was a threat. Those who minister the gospel are a threat. They're a threat to the established leadership because they propose a new leader, a new king, the king of kings. And the established powers felt threatened. Galatian stones were thrown by Galatian people who were manipulated by the established powers who felt their positions were being threatened. This is an actual Galatian stone. I have a friend who went to Turkey and went to Lystra and brought me this stone from Lystra. What do your friends bring you when they go on vacation, right? My friend brought me a stone from Lystra, and in fact, many of you were here when I received it, because uh, it was when I was installed as pastor here. It was my friend who gave me the charge when I became pastor here, and he brought me this stone from Lystra as a reminder that there will always be those who are opposed to the gospel and opposed to those who minister the gospel. We minister the gospel still. There will be some who will throw stones, who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some will throw stones, having been incited to, the, to do so by those who vehemently oppose the gospel and the perceived threat to leadership. But we minister the gospel still. 
because it is the truth that has set us free. Amen.